I'm led to believe there are uh, still ladies at the retreat, yeah, listening in. Yeah, I was, I was, I'll have to be on my best behavior then, because normally my wife is listening to the first sermon, and so I get to be uh, less uh, conscious of her in the second. Now she's listening to the second and uh, not the first, so uh, we're in the book of Daniel. Uh, I can't give you a lot of reasons why I chose Daniel. Maybe there's a young man named Daniel who seems to like my daughter at Bible school. <laughs> Maybe subconsciously it's that. She'll kill me if she finds this out. Um, but I've seen the evidence. Um, but I would say that Daniel is a book that at least uh, for a while I've thought is is probably going to be valuable for us living in uh, a pagan culture, let's say. And so, generally speaking, it's, it's going to be quite relevant. And so, my, my hope is that we will um, get a lot from Daniel as we go through this book. Now, we're going to be uh, attempting a modest section this morning from verses 1 through to 7 of chapter 1. So if you would turn there, Daniel 1, beginning at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Well, let us pray for God's blessing upon his word read and preached. Our Father, we thank you for this day, for worshiping, and uh, what a joy it is to know that your word will speak to us, and we will be blessed by it if we come in faith. And so we come in faith now to believe that this is the very word of God. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation as a parent where maybe your child has done something and you've said, well, he, he's a good boy. He's a good boy. Uh, I haven't yet been in that situation of saying he's a good boy, <laughs> uh, but you know that phrase is commonly used, he's a, a good boy. My dad told me once about a time he was at a, a rugby game. Uh, I don't know if it was in Wales. I think it was in Wales and uh, the... 
uh, opposition player was getting into it with the team and got sent off. And as he's walking off the pitch, the crowd are yelling at this opposition player. Everyone in the stadium seems to have this venom towards him. And uh, the person, I think, beside my dad said, never mind, his mother loves him. And um, there's something about uh, the way in which we refer to people as a, a good boy. Daniel, he actually is a good boy. If you look at the scriptures, you will find that one thing interesting about the scriptures is that the faults of God's people are not hidden. Uh, They are plainly described. And even in the Hebrews Hall of Faith, there are plenty of individuals there who you think, hang on now, how did they end up here when you look at the Old Testament evidence? But when you come to a couple of people, Daniel being one, Joseph being another, and there are many parallels between Daniel and Joseph, you find that there really is no blemish on their character, and that's exceedingly rare. But that is the case. Daniel is someone who is without blemish in his moral character. It's something that's highlighted in the beginning here, but it is nevertheless the case that Daniel stands out with Joseph with Christ, who is the preeminent one, but he stands out as a blameless individual. Now, going through Daniel, you can imagine that the commentaries uh, begin with the historical setting and uh, the theme, and they get into the genre and and all of the date setting, and and it's really quite an arduous task to Uh, get into the book of Daniel, and I don't believe that we necessarily need to cover all of those details. Preaching is not quite the same thing as sitting in a a class in the 300s level where you're going through all of these details. There will be some details over the course of the weeks and months that you just need to know to fill in the picture, and I'm going to fill in what I think is necessary. I could bore you, I assure you, with all sorts of details. We could say, well, Daniel uh, occurs in 605 BC, but then someone might say, well, some commentators say 597 is the more accurate date, and you go home and you say, I can't believe Pastor Mark, he should know that 597 is the more accurate dating, and someone says, no, I'm I'm with the 605, and there's a huge fight over lunch because of the dating of Daniel. Um, You're probably not going to get uh, a list of the reasons why certain dates make sense. It's, it's roughly uh, around that period, 605. If it's a few years uh, later, then so be it. The point is it's not uh, you know, 20 years before Christ. It's about 600 years. And it is a book where it occurs in the context of the exile. Almost entirely, the book of Daniel is, is talking like Ezekiel does in terms of Israel being in exile, Judah being in exile. So they are not in the land. And so that changes a little bit of the flow of the book and the concerns and those types of things. So you do need to know uh, when this book occurred. You need to know uh, the context. And we are told that there is a certain king involved. And there are actually a few kings. There's Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler, but you also have uh, Jehoiakim. But there's something more important in a certain sense than that. You're not just getting history in the opening verses. You're getting theological history. The Scriptures are not just recounting historical facts. They're giving us theological history. So, for example, the Lord is the one who gives 
the vessels from God's house into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. It's the Lord who hands over uh, the king in Judah, Jehoiakim, to Nebuchadnezzar. You are not meant to see, as Nebuchadnezzar probably thought, that he was the master of his destiny, the captain of his ship. He's organizing everything. You're meant to see that even though Israel are in exile, even though they have been judged for their faithlessness, and even though Jehoiakim has been a faithless king, and these threats were promised all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, you're meant to see that God is nevertheless present and that he is sovereign and that he has matters under control despite there being judgment. Now, you should also know that Pharaoh was the one who educated Moses in a pagan context. And Moses ends up leading Israel out of Egypt. Now, Daniel is going to be educated in a pagan context, and he will bring about a great exodus of sorts. And so there's going to be lots of parallels that take place, and I think that's quite interesting. The other interesting parallel is uh, sort of a reversal. So Abraham is brought out of a pagan culture for God to create a people. And God has to do something quite remarkable. He can't say to Abraham, you stay there with your people and we'll just make sure you're faithful in that context. He says, no, leave your family, leave your kindred, leave all of them and go to the place that I will tell you. However, Daniel, in the place where Judah in Jerusalem is located, the so-called promised land, the place where worship would take place, he is brought back into Paganism. There's a reversal of what happens with Abraham. And this is a form of judgment. This is not a good thing that is taking place. Now, as we move along, you'll see some interesting details. Because in verse 3, after we have been told in verses 1 and 2 that Jehoiakim, this wicked king, has been given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar with some of the vessels of the house of God, we find out that there are some important individuals. So the king commanded Ashpenaz, in verse 3, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish. And who are these youths? Well, we find out the first is Daniel, which means God is my judge, or the Lord has judged. And when you see Daniel's life unfold, you will see that he sort of is the vehicle, the instrument that allows God to fulfill his judgments upon the Babylonians, upon Nebuchadnezzar. So he lives up to his name. Hananiah, you will also see there, is the Lord is grace. So names are a very important detail, and you have to understand this is theological history. Why are we given their names and then also given their new names? And you're to see in that a type of judgment taking place even upon the godly. So Hananiah means the Lord is grace. Mishael is who is God. And it's not a sort of question we don't know, but a question that helps us to then know who is God. And as an Israelite, they know who God is because he has revealed himself. And then there's Azariah, the Lord helps. And so their names 
bring home the identity of who they are in relation to the true and living God. But notice what happens in verse 6. Their names are changed to pagan names, to Babylonian names. So the chief eunuch, he changes Daniel to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, the god of the Babylonians, he protects Daniel's life. So Daniel's identity goes from the Lord, Yahweh judges, to now Bel, the pagan god, he protects Daniel. And that's his identity now based upon his name. So he is the uh, god Marduk and comes from Babylonia. You have Shadrach, which possibly means the command of Aku. And so that is another pagan god, a Babylonian god. He's being identified now in terms of his relationship to false gods. Meshach is, who is it that is Aku? And again, that's meant to say, well, who is it that is Aku? This individual might tell you who it is that is Aku. And then you have Abednego, the servant of Nego, uh, or maybe Nebo or another type of name. But the idea is they are given pagan names that reveal pagan gods who are false gods. And this is a great indignity This isn't something that they go, oh yes, I've got a new name. Though they are righteous, though they are blameless, which we will look at now, we find that even the godly suffer because of the failings of the king, Jehoiakim, and the failings of the people. And so they have this great indignity. Um, It's kind of funny because, you know, my wife's called Barbara, and uh, you should know that. And uh, I always wondered, you know, that's a bit of an old-fashioned name, if we're being perfectly honest, right? Like, anyone want to argue otherwise? It'll probably come back into style in like 10 years, is my hope. You know how clothes do that? Well, maybe the name will. And I go, why did you get that? She well, it was my mom's name. Oh, that's lovely. But my mom didn't like that name, so she went by her middle name, Lynn. I thought, that's interesting. So you gave your daughter the name that you didn't want to use. Now, that's just a personal preference, uh, Barbara and all that. But you see, that's just not really here or there. These guys are actually being called in terms of their identification with a different God. So you have to understand, this is far, far worse than maybe a name that a mother doesn't want to have for herself. This is an indignity of the greatest proportion in terms of who these individuals are. Now, Who are they? Who is Daniel and how old is he probably? When you're reading this, you're probably thinking, you know, they've been transported to Babylon. How old are they? They're probably uh, about 14 to 17 years old. Now, let's be clear. 14 to 17 years old Daniel is probably equivalent to uh, 35 to 40 years old today. Okay? Now, this is just a fact. 14 to 17-year-olds today compared to 14, 17-year-olds there, I don't think they would match up. And I can tell you that. (laughs) I have a lot of experience with that age group through coaching, through parenting, through church. Uh, We're just not as well-adjusted, let's say. So Daniel is 14 to 17. Don't think of a fresh teenager. Probably think of a very mature young man and it means he was about 80 he got to about 80 or plus in terms of the length of his life now these are the top top students 
And again, I think we would struggle to understand top students even today. Education levels today are pitiful in North America. If you look at uh, theological tests that ministers took even about a hundred years ago at Cambridge, not a single PCA minister, I think, would pass these tests. I've seen them. The level of education back in the day where classics, where students were expected to know and speak Latin and know several languages and know not just science, but some people here say, oh, I'm going to go into the sciences. No, you were a scientist. You were into the English literature. You're into the classical literature. You had to stand before people and be orally examined, not take your assignments home and have mom and dad help you with it and you know, put the little stickers on the cardboard thing and you bring it to school. Okay, we, are, we are living in a time of theological and educational degradation. Many top universities are not actually admitting the best anymore. And this is just a fact we have to say. Now, I'm all for universities still. I'm not against universities. I just came back from a university visit with my son, so I'm clearly not against them. I'm just saying the reality is the education levels of what you need to understand back then, I think, would have been mind-blowing. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But they're not just the top students. They are without blemish. They are the best of the best. They not only are intellectual giants, but they're actually, we're told, good-looking. So notice, these are youths, verse 4, without blemish. They can't be a leper or have any deformities of good appearance. You see that? They need to look nice. If the king has them in his court, he wants them nice looking. He wants them smart. And they need to be skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent. Now, this is quite remarkable because they would have been trained in languages. They would have uh, not only been morally excellent, they would have been intellectually excellent, and they would have looked the part But the amazing thing to me, at least, from my perspective, is when you read of the lives of these young men, they have so many God-given gifts. But what has been my experience in life is that people who excel in these particular gifts, maybe they're extremely good-looking, maybe they're extremely intelligent, or whatever the case may be, and it sets them apart from others, it usually comes with a degree of pride. And arrogance. I said usually. And that's because that's the nature of gifting. Gifting puffs people up. They aren't even aware of it sometimes. Because they don't even know to be aware of it. They just act according to how people will treat them. And if they're intellectual giants, people treat them that way. And they don't even realize they're sometimes acting like snobs. Now, the case with these young men that you need to understand is so remarkable is despite having these giftings in appearance, in intellect, in wisdom, etc., they were nevertheless godly. And so it is possible because God was with them. Now, one commentator, speaking of Daniel and his friends, he says, Daniel and the other youths, as they go into Babylon, would have been exposed to cuneiform 
writing, Babylonian wisdom literature, creation stories, legal corpora, ancient histories, religious rituals and epics, prophecies and the destinies of the nations, letters, dream journals, vision manuals, and undoubtedly a profound introduction to the cheap science of the day, which would have been Babylonian divination through the study of omens. There were various kinds of omens and numerous ways of interpreting them. And this education that they were given was meant for them to then be able to instruct the king and show their wisdom of learning. And that's what he wants, the best. So as they come and they stand before the king, they speak to the king and they display things that the king would go, ah, they deserve to stand in my presence. And so this training is qualifying Daniel and his friends to serve and function before the king. But little does the king know that they had had a better training already and that God was with them and that God had prohibited divination to faithful Israelites. And so they are aware of this. And it's an interesting thing as we go through the book of Daniel, uh, they are called these names and there are certain things they seem to be able to accept as they try to be faithful in a godless and pagan society. And there are other things they don't accept. And that becomes the part of wisdom, living in this sort of non-Christian society. What do you actually accept as just a fact of society? And what do you say, no, I hold my ground on this. Daniel and his friends will be instructive to us in this way. But the most important thing you can understand about Daniel and his friends at this point is that God is with them. Though they have been expelled from Jerusalem, though they have been taken from the place where there was God's house, God's worship, God's people, God would go with them. Now, one point of application as we uh, close. I know it's a lot to take in, a lot of facts, a lot of details. Um, but it's, it's God's sovereignty from the get-go we have to understand on God's terms and by that I mean God's sovereignty in the book of Daniel is what we might call a humble sovereignty in other words the way we expect God to do things is not typically how God does things and Luther understood this amazingly well in the time of the Reformation he said there are two types of theologians and this is what he was dealing with in the Reformation. There's the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. And the theologian of glory is the type of person who is like the child who understands strength according to my dad is stronger than your dad and understands strength and power in a very limited way. It's about muscles. It's about force. And it's about being able to show destruction. And that is why kids were taken up with Superman. I had a Superman outfit that I wore so much. My dad didn't want to go out to the store with me because this thing was so, uh, you know, gross looking, you know, but Superman captured my imagination because he could fly and he was powerful. I was a theologian of glory by nature. But Luther says the theologian of the cross understands God through the cross. And so God's sovereignty must be understood even through the cross. That is to say, God typically, in the way he orders things and organizes things and displays his wisdom and power, is contrary to how we think things should work. This was brought home to me in a rather stark way recently, actually. 
it's no surprise and shock to you that you know I have boys that like the game of soccer and I'm trying to tell Josh, you know, we don't have ideas of professional soccer at all in our family, but we do have ideas that you can use things like soccer to advance yourself in terms of education and, and um, you know, have certain things paid for and student athletes are, are hired out of university because they, they have a far more demanding schedule usually than ordinary. So I had this idea that he would go to this tournament in San Diego and all these coaches would be there and we emailed them all and they were going to be there and this was like the best of the best tournament and I had it set up with this great team and everything was looking so good until he got really ill. And I was begging and pleading for him to just get better just in time for the tournament. We were going down and lo and behold, the doctor report comes back and there's no way he's going. And I still had to go, which was too bad. <laughs> And I get down there and I see all these coaches on the sidelines taking notes, coming up to me because I was the coach asking me about players. And I'm like, this is devastating. This was his chance, you know. And I've been, as a parent, wanting this for my son. I think he wants it too. I don't really know. (laughs) And so it just didn't happen. And some of the coaches there from the top universities, Stanford coaches sitting there, Portland, you name it. And then there's this tournament in Orlando at the end of the month and I looked at the coaches going and I just sighed because I was like this is shocking I mean these I don't even heard of most of these places you know it'd be like Douglas College uh, you know uh, for a person living in Orlando has no idea what Douglas College is but there was one college there one division one school going and I thought oh well you know I'll just reach out there's hundreds of players thousands maybe and I reach out he says oh I'm looking forward to watching Josh and then I had to email and said actually he's quite sick I'm not sure he's going to make it We finally decided to take him after six weeks off. The coach actually came to the first game. And I was like, okay, maybe he'll just somehow play well after being off for so long. Oh, the first half, he was terrible. And someone goes, oh, the Colgate coach is here, but he left after 30 minutes. And I was like, oh. I said, Josh, you know, it just hasn't been your time. You know, San Diego, and now he comes for 30 minutes, and you were not very good 30 minutes. The second half, you were back to your normal self almost, right? It was pretty impressive. So I just was like, okay, whatever. Who cares? It's in the Lord's hands, I guess. I'm lying in bed. Why, Lord? Then he comes to the game the next day, and he, I think, oh, he's obviously looking at another player. Turns out, to make a long story short, he actually really liked him. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, come on but he really did. And he's flying him out this weekend and he's offered like an $80,000 a year scholarship, it looks like. And the point is, is that I wanted to organize and control and dictate how things should have gone and everything that was bad and shouldn't have happened went bad and shouldn't have happened. And it left me in a place where I was like, why, why, why? And I use this very tiny story to illustrate that when God does things, he does it on his terms. And that is a painful lesson you're going to need to learn over and over and over again. And yet the painful lesson is actually a glorious lesson because that's how God works. How is God going to do great and wondrous things? Oh, well, the Babylonians come in and they spoil Judah. They take the king into servitude for three years and they take away their best youths and everything's crumbling before God's people. And yet, and yet, God is able to bring out of that judgment grace. God is able to bring out of that victory. And Daniel, after three years of learning, would stand before the king to show whether he had been faithful in his learning. 
And for three years our Lord ministered. And for three years he was taught, as we read earlier, morning by morning. His ears were opened by his Father as one who was taught. And he would stand before the king. He would fall on his knees before the king in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he would stand before the king, as it were, as he hung upon the cross. And what you see in Jesus Christ is God's humble sovereignty. It's one of the first things Peter brings out in his sermon at Pentecost. You go to chapter 4 and chapter 2, you will see that Peter highlights what? That you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, but you did what God's foreknowledge had decided beforehand should happen. It looked like defeat. It looked like horror. It looked like there was no victory at all that the Messiah had lost and yet nothing could be farther from the truth because God was with Christ just as He was with Daniel and his friends. And you're going to have a life, whether you're young or whether you're old or in between, and you're going to have a life where things are not going to make sense. And you're going to have to trust God's humble sovereignty in your life, that that humble sovereignty means you will be the one humbled in His sovereignty. Not a majestic sovereignty. Not a theology of glory. Not a theology where you just go from strength to strength and everything's great. No. Sometimes you're going to be brought into the place where only God can bring you out. Because you can't. And Daniel is an example of this. His three friends are an example of this. And our Lord Jesus Christ is an example of this where God's sovereignty was not a powerful, majestic one at the cross, but a humble one whereby He would allow the forces of evil to think they had won and yet that was only the beginning of God's victory and salvation of His people. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, that Your ways are not our ways, that Your ways are higher infinitely higher than our ways. And so when you act, when you work, we can see things from our perspective going horribly wrong. And yet the eye of faith latches on to the truth that you are the God who is still in control. And so we praise you and thank you for that. For Jesus' sake, amen.